is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is sponsored by our friends at Sustain, a community of open source enthusiasts and professionals that care about the future of open source. Learn more at sustainoss.org. On the panel today is Sean Goggins. Hi, I'm Sean Goggins. Good to talk to everyone. Hi, Sean. I'm a founder of the Chaos community along with few other people. And uh, currently I'm one of the co-directors or co-chairs, whatever they're called. And really happy to be here. Excellent. Thank you. And myself, Georg Link. Hi, everyone. I'm also co-founder. I'm also on the board and I love hosting these podcasts. And today I'm excited that we have Maurice Hendricks with us from Amsterdam to talk about his views on open source. Hi, Maurice. Hi. Thanks for having me. As George said, I'm a policymaker for the municipality of Amsterdam and have been working before in data analytics and have a background in social science and IT. Yes, excellent. So glad you were able to come on. So what is your journey been into open source? How did you get into the field? I have always been helping with technology. For example, like 20 to 25 years ago, I started with tinkering with computers, getting into Linux, Slackware at the time, trying to compile my own kernel, getting the X system to work, feeling the joy of tinkering for weeks with manually compiling stuff before there were software repositories and feeling the joy of having people in the world being passionate about contributing to free software. As soon as I got the job in Amsterdam to make policy on open source, my mother would tell me, you've been talking about this for the last 20 years, why it's open source, not the default in government. And I've been working in data science for some time after my graduation. I always been the one that would question everything that I was doing. In my jobs, I always was the one that directly registers GitHub accounts for the team I was working in, hoping that I would get my team members to publish the things we were doing for government open source. but. I got to a point where some of the stuff I did was published on GitHub and just ran into a manager in Amsterdam that said open source seemed as an important aspect for the morality of the city, but we have no one that has actually any knowledge on the subject. So with your frustration in doing data science and doing programming, would you like to join us? getting open source to actually work. And of course I said, yes. And I've always been tinkering with technology, but I experienced in my first study was that a lot of my 
colleagues or a lot of the fellow students were too much into the technology. I've been always been feeling the risk of if we get a major electricity fallout, then everything I have done in my life is totally useless. So if there's no power, there's no software. If there's no power, there's no technology. That's why I went into social studies and social sciences, because what I'm interested in is what I said before, there are people that are invested into getting stuff to work, not for money, but for value. And that was something that I was interested in. And I'm just in general interested in the psychics of people and people working together in systems and communicating and how they relate to systems and technology working together and how those patterns overlap in some cases. I would imagine that there's a tension between what you're trying to accomplish and people perhaps not even being aware of how technology affects their lives or where it touches their lives. Do those kinds of misunderstandings affect the work that you're trying to accomplish? The great thing in the Netherlands is that we have two laws. One says that all government information should be as publicly available as possible. And the other one says that if information is publicly available, it should be available in such a way that it's being made reusable. It's really distinct from the United States where we have a law that, for example, every registered voter needs to be made available. And almost every state makes them available in non-digestible PDF files. So that's in theory what the law says. In practice, it doesn't go as well as it should. And we in Europe, I think the Netherlands in the context of Europe isn't that far ahead on the matter, but it makes it more easy to put open source in a different context. So. Instead of having open source as a mean to community cooperation, I have been working into getting open source as a sense of government information that should be made available to be transparent as a governmental agency. We have had some scandals in the Netherlands where algorithms for the tax services would discriminate certain citizens or a lot of citizens badly especially poor people. And what you see in that case that, for example, advocates or other representatives for citizens couldn't get around how it happens. They couldn't get the finger what went wrong in those systems. So my mission is to make open source a mean to get that kind of transparency back into what we call government information and especially on the side of software and technology and that message resonates and is that also what you were saying earlier with open source is essential for the morality of the city the city of amsterdam and, and i think you as americans know is seen as a very liberal and progressive perhaps progressive city uh, i was uh, exactly a progressive city we're not as progressive as we once were. And we're a very leftist city. So things like having a high moral in how we interact with big companies, with digital rights, with inclusion, 
at Cedra and transparency is something that is seen as very important in Amsterdam. So in Amsterdam, we once started with algorithm register where we want to publish our algorithms. We don't have as much published because of the question Shell asked earlier. How does it resonate and does it actually work? But we have the intention to, but the project has been incorporated by the national lawmakers into something that now has been worked on in the Netherlands as a whole, not just Amsterdam. So in some ways, we're still progressive in how we look at technology. That's a great thing now at working at the biggest city in a country. So you had mentioned that your vision or the message that you have for open source in government in Amsterdam is to use it as a tool to elevate government transparency. So I'm curious from that perspective, how that influences your view on the health and sustainability of open source, because here in the chaos project, we are very interested in the health of an open source community. What does that mean? Different people, different companies have perspectives on that and they use metrics to look at what are the markers of a really healthy community. So I'm curious to hear from you from this government perspective that you have, what is a healthy open source project or community? There are different perspectives on it, at least in how I see it. Cooperation is something that is great when it works, but as a government, we're not at the table to start corporations or to initiate in corporations to get open source software to work because then you would get into the market of the software companies. So we also have a law in the Netherlands that says as a government, you cannot just open source software because you get in the way of the companies and you get a lot of level playing fields. And on the other hand, when you're just focusing on open source, and that's also what maybe what Sean was referencing before, there are a lot of steps to take before you can get community corporations to work, at least in my opinion. So the first step and the most easy step would be not to open source those, but to make it publicly available without a license. It doesn't interfere with commercial companies because you can just look at source code, but not reuse it into getting to feel comfortable with having actually open source software, other people reusing the software into maybe participating, having a tender. For example, what we see a lot in the Netherlands is that you have big companies taking on a tender and building software for maybe tens of millions of euros. But what about saying you split up the tender into small components or modules and having each of them build reusable and generic interfaceable components that interact. So if you go through all these steps, then at the end of the tunnel, you maybe get into a situation where cooperation actually works. Maybe get into work communities. And after that, we were trying it in the Netherlands with the Common Ground, which is a project that tries to combine the efforts of different municipalities into self-built software. What we see is that the biggest participant is Amsterdam because we do have actual developers. We have the money 
to sustain larger open source projects, well, there isn't much cooperation. People use our stuff, use our software, but are participating in the way that you would like in healthy communities. So are these other governments, other municipalities in the Netherlands that are using the open source software built in Amsterdam or are these commercial enterprises? Mostly other municipalities. Before we also built software and had companies implemented in other municipalities. So as a city, you aren't a ICT service provider. That's not your core business. So if another city wants to use our software, we're not going to implement it, but you can. We had some corporations, companies that did it for us. While open source software today is powering critical infrastructure, the open source ecosystem as a whole is rapidly changing, facing challenges for governance, maintenance, maintainer burnout, funding, marketing, and more. Are you concerned about these things for your open source software too? Well, in the Sustain community, we discuss these challenges and share solutions for how to sustain open source in the long haul. We meet once per year in person, and the rest of the time we keep the fire burning in our discourse forum. Join our conversations at sustainoss.org and sustainoss on Twitter. That's a challenge where there's a community of consuming organizations that they get the benefit of not having a large upfront cost for the software. Mm -hmm. They get the benefit of not having to pay annual licensing fees to a company and be Mm -hmm. kind of locked into them. And so the idea that you're shooting for sounds like it's kind of a decentralized model where there are a lot of contributors to interconnected projects. And it kind of removes the, what we would call vendor lock in the Mm -hmm. United States. And one of the challenges you're facing is building that community of contributing municipalities so it's not heavily driven by Amsterdam. Yes, but if you're trying to achieve that, you get into a larger governance question. Yes. It's hard to do. Things that we're already addressing. For example, we have a bigger project now currently open source. It's called Open City and Open Stuff in Dutch. And it's about democratic participation of enhancing democratic processes in the Netherlands. The city of The Hague is also cooperating and to other companies. But you still see that 95% or maybe 90% of the work has been done by Amsterdam. You get into the question who actually governs the source code. Is that still Amsterdam or is that some sort of foundation? And if Amsterdam is the one, does it create another vendor lock-in? Is Amsterdam the one that can decide that we change functionality and have breaking API changes? Or should that be another entity, independent entity, and we don't have the right answers to it? So what I'm now getting into is, or thinking about is, Getting back to open source as it once was back in the 80s when Richard Stellman started open source as a mean to have the transparency. So if you buy software, if you buy the printed software he was complaining about, then you should have the right to also have insight into the source code and change it. So 
back to the roots of open source, Amsterdam open sources. I hope I can get that to work citywide. We open source all our software that we are legally able to, and people can use it in any way they like. And that's it. And if you want communities, if you want corporations, if you want to have a shared development, then there should be an independent entity that can actually take the responsibility without creating a new public entity vendor locking. It's very interesting challenge. And I always struggle with this tension between different interests and the larger organizations can move faster and contribute more. It sounds like some of what you're trying to accomplish may need the aid of a policy that's more at a national level and recognizes that this kind of municipal open source software is valuable to the country of the Netherlands and the cities who contribute get some kind of economic benefit, some kind of, I guess they'd call it money or taxes that support your efforts in accordance with their actual contributions or some other kind of policy. And I'm curious, how would policy potentially influence this social system? Because it is a very complex social system that you're describing, I think. It all gets back to taking responsibility as a single city, being the largest contributor in open source projects, at least at the moment, having built large open source projects ourselves. You just can't also take the responsibility for those projects when it's used in other places. We still haven't got the answer how yeah. we can get around that governance question. And for as long as we don't have the answer to it, we should get back into the, what I said, more the, the roots of open source as being able to reuse what is being built before for your own good. And that's it. So I think one of the things that is buried in what you said is other municipalities want features, changes, additions, and instead of making upstream contributions, they look to Amsterdam as almost a service provider and Amsterdam simply can't carry all of that weight on their own shoulders to accommodate each idiosyncrasy of each municipality. And that's only can. Or maybe we can, but a municipality isn't an IT service provider. And we're even forbidden to be an IT service provider. The government cannot be a competitor to the private sector. Yes, exactly. And so open source does enable you to create software that ostensibly doesn't compete with the private sector. We have a law in the Netherlands that says that you can get into competition with commercial Vendors, as long as it relates to intrinsic governmental tasks. So we have a national citizen registration. And so having a social service number in the Netherlands is a government responsibility. So everything that is built around it is intrinsically linked to that responsibility. So you can make software around it as a city or as a government without getting into competition. But on the other hand, for example, we also do employee registration, also a summary registration and all kinds of stuff, time registrations. That's just general 
functionality, not intrinsically related to governmental tasks. So as soon as you get into that functionality, you're into competition with the commercial sector and you're not allowed to, and not even allowed to, I believe you shouldn't want it because having a working and a healthy private sector is also key for any nation or any city to work. So is a model then where the city of Amsterdam or other municipalities commission the work and the software then what you were describing as modulized and interfaceable that those are then made available. You said leave out the license. I don't want to use open source here, but then to not compete, ask the private sector again to implement it in other municipalities where they are reusing the code, but it's not provided as a service from the government. It is reducing the cost of contracting the private sector because they have a starting point that is already cheaper. And then it's basically just the implementation and customization for each municipality. Is that how I can imagine it? It's basically as simple as as soon as you open source something, you get into an economic activity because you get in the way of private sector, possibly. And that's not always allowed, at least not in the Netherlands. And that's the difference between open sourcing something and having something publicly available. That's having something publicly available is still protected by copyright. So cannot be used just by others. What I did say about the modularization and the component-based software development is that you can imagine that you, for example, say to bigger companies or in your tenders, we want you to do the work differently. What we see a lot in government projects, and I think that the Netherlands is not unique in it, is that we get into a tender for tens of millions and at the end the project fails and we can throw everything into the garbage. But when you would have built and would have had a modular setup and uh, built components, then you still can have failing projects, but have a massively grown component library that can be reduced in other projects again. And that's the mindset that I'm trying to get into the heads of people as a policymaker. So that open source is a lot more, or the vision open source, and maybe through the Linux storefalls and the whole Linux setup can change in ways how we look at tenders, how we look at software, how we look at community, how we look at transparency of technology, as you see there. So as a glue, as a mean to all those efforts. So open source is informing, or the way that open source works is informing the way that you want to do tenders in the future, learning from those best practices. But it's not like here in the United States where there's a requirement for software created for or by government, a certain percentage needs to be open source. Actually, it's the opposite where you're not even allowed to open source in most cases. What we do have, and that's something that bothers me as a policymaker, is always a balance. For example, if we have standardized tender contracts in the Netherlands, and the contract says, if something is being handmade for you, especially instead of standardized software, then 
you should get the intellectual property of it. But what happens is that companies often say, well, if you want intellectual property, then maybe we currently have it going for a new font for Amsterdam. And the font is twice as expensive when we actually get intellectual property than when we leave it. And often the city says, so half the price for a new font sounds a lot more attractive, not always knowing what you're giving away. Because when you give it away, you can't open source it anymore. So those are things that I'm trying to achieve in steps, getting to, at the start, get into the numbers. What does it cost if we keep the intellectual property in our own hands? So if you know what it costs, then you can actually say, is it worth us to be ambitious on open source? If you can say what we often are not doing, we want a new bookkeeping suite and we have a standardized software and we have an open source variant that doesn't fully comply. We just look at the checkboxes and say, okay, this one does comply, this one doesn't, but we're not invested in getting the information. What would it cost to get the open source project to comply? And when you don't have those numbers and when you don't have this information, then you can't make informed decisions. And that's a lot of those things I'm eager to get into. Software, it seems, is very similar to any other infrastructure. And we have declared historically that some infrastructure is a social good that has the public takes responsibility for creating roads and bridges are the obvious example of infrastructure that has very little private enterprise, at least involved in the ownership and maintenance. Although there are, of course, contracts that are given for maintaining and creating those pieces of infrastructure. With open source software, it seems, having maintained open source projects myself, it seems that if you create something and open source it, you have a permanent responsibility almost to ensure that it's sustained, especially if people rely on it. So how do you balance that question? Because I think if software is a social good, open sourcing, it makes a lot of sense, but there needs to be some kind of way for that to be sustainable. So it's not just Maurice that's (laughs) maintaining a particular project. Yet I got away from maintaining projects. I'm only having to think about them from now on as a policymaker. But I use the exact same analogy. Uh, six years ago, when I was a data scientist in Amsterdam, I said we should incorporate the MPL version two and use weak copyleft licenses for governments. I did test the strong copyleft licenses and the permissive licenses for exactly the same reason. Permissive licenses say you can have software that is built for the commons into closed source components. And I think it would be the same as being able to close roads because I want to drive over them for a certain period of time. And on the other hand, you can still use our roads and bridges for commercial purposes. I don't care. We don't have paid roads that you have to pay a fee to use them. But on the other hand, it's not like with roads. It's not as if when a tile is loose, that a general citizen gets on its knees and fixes it. You still have uh, over and a bridge and needs service. Then you still have commercial companies that do does the service. 
with software, it's not like everybody can use it in a low level manner. So it's truly for the common. With software, it's a niche that actually looks into it, that actually uses it, that can maintain it. So looking to it from a community perspective, there are communities servicing bridges and roads. So that's what makes it difficult. Yeah, it's an incredible challenge that you're taking on. And I think what excites me about it is the potential for a great deal of social good to arise out of it that thinking progressively as a person who also cares about social matters. If we have a small number of highly distributed companies that interact with each other, that vision creates wealth for many more people than if we have a much smaller number of large companies that are creating proprietary software. From a social perspective, I think that system is more sustainable. I don't know how to get there. I think the main lesson that people should get from my vision is that community-built software is the cherry on the cake. And if you're not building the layers properly, and if you not get your environment comfortable with the thoughts around open source software, then you're not getting a cake at all. And that's what we see a lot in government corporations. So that's why I get back to the easy part into law, what do we have to do? And secondly, what do we want to do? And what we have to do is be transparent, be accountable and be reusable. And once we get to that goals, then we can look further in. We're now reusable and transparent. How can we make it into something worthy economic wise? So we're coming up on the end of this episode. If someone were wanting to follow up on your work and what's going on in the Amsterdam city on policy, is there a good place for people to follow your work and stay in touch? One of the drives I have to get into open policy as another factor besides open source, open hardware, open data, etc., to just build policy around open matters openly. But I'm not there yet. So no, at the moment, it's just getting it touched. And as soon as we get into clear decisions, but because I'm still in the decision-making process, having management or the, the public offices themselves taking the decision on my vision that I'm preparing, I will be shouting it out largely, but mostly in Dutch. Because I think having getting of having developers, forcing developers into doing everything in English doesn't support transparency for the Dutch citizen, but only supports the cherries. And so we do have getup.com slash Amsterdam that you can follow. I hope I can get my managers comfortable into me publishing all the policy I get decided. But Having them understand that for you guys, no, <laughs> not in the near future. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Can't boil the ocean. Yes, I hope we can get more done on European Union level. That would be great, but we're not there yet. We have the UPL. That's a great meme for getting this. What is the UPL? The European Union Public License which is a weak copyleft license that is compatible with all member states of the European Union, with all law of member states. 
and which is available in all translations for all member states. So if governments uses EUPL, are you're sure that your license incorporates and is compatible with all member states and most other software licenses. So the UPL is available in English. If you're interested, you can read it. Yeah, I haven't used that license sitting here in the United States, but it sounds like one worth looking into. Yeah, European Union public license. That's also on the open source yes. initiative approved list of licenses. All right. So we are coming up on the last segment of this podcast, Value Ads, where we like to share something that has brought value, joy or meaning to our life recently. And for me, it was a family trip. We took our son for the first time to Europe. We visited Amsterdam. So we were in Amsterdam for a few days. We were in Berlin. We were in Paris. And along the way, we had two family reunions on my mom's side and on my dad's side. So for me, it was great to reconnect after long years of not being able to travel, reconnect with my aunts and uncles and grandparents and cousins. And yeah, just to be able to have family back together again. That was really awesome for me. My something that brought value, joy and meaning to my life is seeing what the people in my country are doing in response to a host of liberty-depriving rulings by our Supreme Court. Those are horrible things, but the number of people who are actively engaged in fixing those problems, shall we say, has been inspiring to me. I have never witnessed so many citizens in the streets for any purpose in my life, so I find that very uplifting. My wife just finished her book. Congratulations. Yes, it's about a veteran that fought in the Dutch East Indies Wars and the end of colonization. And what is great is that yesterday we've been mailing and promoting the book a lot with all kinds of communities on the subject. And yesterday she got in touch that she will be one of the opening speakers on a big manifestation that lasts for a week as 80,000 visitors. Holy cow. To, to wow. So the story she wrote. So Rolling start, Stones don't get 80,000. Yeah, it's not in one day, it's over a week. So okay. Rolling Stones can't get even into a week anymore. So it's great that something that started once as a hobby. So got to know the guy in the museum, guy's 85 years old told his story and she asked him, did anyone ever wrote it into a book? So she said, no, it's just a small, some small articles in newspapers on websites and she took on the job to get his life story into a book. It's about uh -huh. a perspective that has never been told before on the matter. It's really biography, historical yes. biography. Did you write it in LaTeX? <laughs> I made it into a booklet with software, made it into a book, they added <laughs> photography, design, the, the photoshopping and stuff. So I'm tired, but it's being published the upcoming months. That's great. No, she did not do it in latex, but I'm trying into getting her to use an open font. That's the best I could do. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's something. So she learned what an open font license is. But I also got into the issues with open font licensing because it doesn't have certain characters 
that are essential for book publishing. So I also got into fonts. How can I write that fonts so that it works for everything we need to do? But I'm not sure I managed to. So after tinkering with Linux kernels, I ended up tinkering with fonts. <laughs> What's the title of the book? It's called in Dutch, that's dual meaning. It's called Surviving the Eastern Dutch Indies. In English, it says also surviving and living in. So overleven is about living in and surviving it. And so it's that's a dual meaning. Well, I think telling a story like that is certainly lines up with the values that you're striving to achieve in your work as well. It sounds like you're a good pair. Thank you so much for coming on, Maurice. Really appreciate talking with you today. Yeah. Thank you, Sean, for being a panelist today. No, and thanks. Thing I enjoyed talking to Maurice. I just found this Open MIT Neural Machine Translation System, for what it's worth. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you, dear listener, for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. Share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episode topics or would like to come on as a guest, please email us podcast at chaos.community. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, your chaos community. <laughs>